Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. A friend of mine who was also going to go to college in the same area, I seen him at the Black Ops Festival and I was like, hey man, he said, I'm going here. So I will catch up, we'll chop it up there. And so I'm packed up to um, go to college and then the story comes on the news that uh, he had actually been shot mm. and killed. And I remember thinking he never got a chance to go to college. And it made me think of all of the people in my neighborhood who didn't get a chance to go to college. And so I realized at that moment that I wasn't going to college just for me. I was going to college for all the people who never got a chance. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. The Bible forces us to ask questions about who God is and what he's like. What kind of questions do you find yourself asking when you read the scriptures? For some of us, we can't help but wonder if God is only concerned about our souls in eternity, or if he also cares about our whole person, body and soul, and present circumstances. How are we to share in that concern and care for those in need? What does the Bible say about being socially active and pursuing justice? Those are the questions that have driven Dr. Esau McCauley to not only pursue a PhD in New Testament, but also to specialize in the intersection of race, Christian identity, and the pursuit of justice. But Dr. McCauley's expertise does not only come from his PhD. Esau's culture and life experiences have directly shaped his understanding of how faith impacts everyday life. So let's begin in Huntsville, Alabama, or at least the part of Huntsville where Dr. Esau McCauley grew up. You're listening to Where You're From. Like most Southern cities, there's two Huntsville. So it depends what you mean. Okay. Like my Huntsville was the black part, right? There was okay. literally the other side of town. There's a neighborhood there called Weisberg. Uh, really? Like yeah. literally Weisberg? Yeah. I mean, like there's a street called Weisberg, Huntsville, Alabama. Okay. There probably was a guy named Weisberg. I have no idea. Sure. But there's like, you know, the two sides of town. I grew up in the all black part of um, Huntsville. Uh-huh. I tell people that my neighborhood is, is stereotypically black as you can imagine. Okay. So it's like all black church with the gospel choir um, and the men's choir that like sung once a month. It wasn't on point but the other three. So you tried to find out when the men's choir was going to be there and you skipped it uh, <laughs> that Sunday. I went to another one just running around the black part of the city avoiding the men's choirs. Uh, <laughs> I went to, an, like I said, all-black high school, and I was telling people, like, we were so, like, stereotypically black. We had, like, one white guy on the football team, and he was the kicker, mm. right? And he couldn't even kick. <laughs> the coach is like, 
he said, I'm a defensive end. He said, you're going to kick. <laughs> so he just, just he used to go out there and do a kickoff and kick it like 15 yards. And the coach would like throw everything. It's like, well, bro, you can't just put the white guys in charge and make them the kicker. So um, single parent home with the four of us. Mm-hmm. My mom... She was the first one of her siblings and one of the first ones who went to integrated schools. Mm. So my grandparents went to segregated schools. My mom went to integrated schools, and my sister um, was the first one to graduate from college. She's still alive, and I was. So you experienced the entire like legacy of the civil rights movement, and like your grandma, yes, segregated schools. Your mom first to integrate, yes. Your sister first to graduate from college, and your cousin. Okay. And so like people talk about like people with college educated parents are more likely to go to. College. College. So my mom was less likely to go to college because of the laws put in place in the South forbidding her from doing so. Not a hundred years ago, her parents. Right. So my grandfather, who is alive now, could not go to integrated colleges. Mm. Gotcha. What was your like faith background, your faith journey, and kind of like when it be, you know from a personal standpoint? So I grew up in, like I said, a Black Baptist church. My grandfather was a pastor. There were a lot of pastors in our family. Um, There was like a pretty strong bifurcation between people who were kind of on a good track versus people who were on a bad track. Okay. And so I was something of like a church kid who did enough street stuff to get people to leave me alone. I wasn't really trying to be like anything. Mm. I just wanted some peace. (laughs) So um, that was kind of the context in which I grew up in. So Mm. my church was really involved in the community. We used to watch Eyes on the Prize, yep, the yep. documentary series, yes. every year. And they were all Christians. So in our context, what was the civil rights movement was like the Christian movement. right? And so my understanding of faith growing up was like a Jesus who obviously loved you and forgave you for your sins and right. wanted you to act right, but also a Jesus who cared about what was happening to us. Okay, so you it's like you didn't know anything different. It was always integrated, the salvific kind of personal side and the social. People say, people should talk about fatherlessness in the black community. And this, I was like, what black church have you been to? Like my pastor would talk about this stuff all the time. Right. And so um, we there is a strong emphasis on what you call personal transformation and holiness of life mm-hmm. and social action. And so um, those things were never separated for me. And it would be wrong to say like that I was, I would come to church on Sunday and say, okay, pastor, you got like an hour, convince me not to do something stupid. And, <laughs> and if he had a good sermon, it's like, you win this week, I'll see you next week. My faith was like week to week. Wow. Cause the streets and all yeah. the other stuff was like pressing on me. Right. And so like every week or every day, I was making some kind of decision as to who I was going to be. And so there was like a direct urgency to my faith. It wasn't wow. sophisticated. I was a Christian. Right. And so now whenever I preach or I speak somewhere, I think of the student or the person who's in the back of the church who's thinking, I'm in the church today. I don't know if I'm going to be there tomorrow. Wow. I guess so that's kind of all the way through high school. So then what happens next to you after high school? I don't know this is true of all black faith, but I think it's like at least from the parts of the community that I grew up in. So, like, there is a significant part of our spirituality is that it was, in some sense, a means of escape. Mm. So, like, Christianity kept you on track so you can go to college. Mm. There's this celebration of black academic achievement in the church. So, like, yes. so-and-so got a scholarship and you stand up and you everybody celebrate. Clapped. And everybody clapped. Everybody clapped. Yeah. And so, Even if they didn't get a scholarship. Yeah, just, just like, a, just go. They graduated from yeah. high school. Congratulations. And so there was a sense in which... Um, you go to college, you learn all of this stuff, and you come back and help the community. And so um, I would say 
the thing that happened that had a strong impact on me was the day before I was getting ready to leave, a friend of mine who was also going to go to college in the same area, um, I seen him at the Black Ops Festival, and I was like, hey, man, he said, I'm going here. I said, oh, we'll catch up. We'll chop it up there. And so I'm packed up to um, go to college, and then the story comes on the news that um, he'd actually been shot mm. and killed. And I remember thinking he never got a chance to go to college. Mm. And it made me think of all of the people in my neighborhood who didn't get a chance to go to college. And so I realized at that moment that I wasn't going to college just for me. I was going to college for all the people who never got a chance. And so I would say that had an impact on the seriousness with which I took. Yeah, and, that, and that's something that I think for people who may not grow up in a, in a community yeah. with those kind of stakes. Yeah. Like, break that down. Like, what does that mean to be like, I'm not just going for me, but I'm going for all the other people. Because if you if you understand like impoverished neighborhoods, I don't think people always understand how protected they can be of people who they see as having some potential. Right. And so pretty on, I was a pretty decent athlete and I was a decent student. And so people were like, watch out for me and say like, you know, leave, leave that, little, you know, that little brother alone. He's, he's trying to do something, you know, mm -hmm. he ain't like us. And so there's essentially what you kind of care, you're like giving a pass. Not mm -hmm. everybody doesn't follow right. that rule. Some right. people say, like, you think you're better than us and you have the other part. There's a real sense in which, like, the culture lifts you up yeah. and says, like, you got a chance to, like, do more than what we had an opportunity to do. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Aquila and the Bee yeah. where, you know, she's studying. She's, you know, also from a hard hit community, yeah. struggling community. But then when people see, wait a minute, she's actually competing in this national competition. The whole... Even the gangsters are like, yeah. yo, oh, yeah, let us study, let us study. <laughs> you know, like, let's it. help her to get there. And so that was that was partially um, my experience. And so going from there to a largely white secular campus was an experience. Okay. <laughs> they can't see the big smile. <laughs> it was an experience. Okay. I remember when I first walked on the campus, there was like, the, you know how you, everybody moves in and they have the doors to the open, you can see people put in their stuff? Yeah. And there was this, this Confederate flag that was like as big as the wall mm. on like three dollars down from me. And I looked in there as I was walking by, I was like, where are we? Right, because what does that flag mean to you? Racism. You and what do you mean, what does it mean? It's What is it? Sorry, I'm sorry. This, I, I'm, I'm just, some people... <laughs> I know, it, people, people talk about heritage, not hate. So I get it. No, I don't get it. Because um, Paul talks about, like, uh, if it costs my brother sin, I right. will never eat meat. Right. That's what Paul said. Like, right. Paul says, I have some responsibility right. for the weaker brother. Right. And if you have, like, basically an entire Christian community saying to you, this to me is a stumbling block. And right. this is causing right. me not to feel safe. Right. Even if you grant that the historical right. means this, then, like, no, we're the weaker brother. That's, that's all I'm saying is when you saw it, it immediately. Yeah, it immediately coded, it. like, they right. don't want me here. Got it. So to imagine going from a neighborhood where black is normal to black is the exception. Mm. And kind of the assumptions about our black intellectual abilities. Um, How did you come to see that? This that there was a different set of assumptions about your abilities. I did really, really well my okay. first semester there. Okay. Um, and they have this kind of academic honor society um, that you have to get a certain GPA your first semester right. there in order to get it. And it was relatively uncommon for, um, like, especially athletes to get in, and then athletes of color. So I got into it, like, my first semester. Okay. And so that you would have thought that I had, like, walked on water because I had gotten straight A's. I was like, well, what do you expect me to do? Come here and, like, you know, 
draw circles and make a coloring book on my test. And gotcha. so it was the excessive praise for what is relatively normal. Yeah. It's like, what you? oh, you're so articulate. What, what, as opposed to what? Right. It was like, I was lifted up in that context of this like shining example of like, look at what we've done. Mm. Um, Which ironically still caused you to feel the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and like because- uh, in the humanities, there was one black prof and he taught African-American history. So what does that encode? That you're competent to only talk about your people. Mm. But we can talk about everything. But I would say, like, the other thing that was going on there was, like, spiritual. This is where I got introduced to kind of the fight that was going on between kind of evangelicalism and the mainline tradition. Because my professor was a progressive professor. My professors were progressive for the large part. And there were white professors who were really mad. They hated fundamentalists. And so they were trying to say, like, this idea that the Bible is true. Is, like, those people did all of the horrible stuff in the South, right? Mm. The fundamentalists are the cause of all things that are evil that have ever happened in the South. Which actually, like, a lot of, some of that stuff is true, right? Fundamentalists did, like, lynch and burn and kill people, but progressives did. You get eugenics, right? So, like, we, <laughs> we can pull receipts on everybody. Right. Um, but when and, just was, so, and just for people that don't know what eugenics is, break that down in three sentences. <laughs> Eugenics is this idea that you can, um, through control and reproduction, pass along positive traits and kind of create this best version of humanity. Right. And given the fact that, you know, they had this hierarchy of species, then one of the things you should do is to say that black people should reproduce less because we are passing along our inferiority genetic code. Mm -hmm. So um, that was popular in progressive circles. Right. So there was a strain of racism that yes. it manifested itself in that and that was in some ways a foil or a reflection yes. of the fundamentalist version. So or what they were trying to do was say, look, this kind of unthinking support, belief in the Bible leads to all of these problems. Therefore, I'm going to deconstruct your fundamentalism and make you all kind of progressives. Right. But like the unintended casualty in that war was the black church. Mm. Because the same Bible that like um, racists used to kind of take away black hope was the Bible that black people said was the source of our hope. So in the context of critiquing fundamentalism, they indirectly insulted the black, the ground, they took the rock, you know, upon which we stood. Mm. And so part of my spiritual journey was not really becoming, I was never a non-Christian, but when you like take away the authority of, of like God and like really speak it into your life, then you kind of just do what you want to do. And so um, I would say there was a period of my college career, not very long, where I just kind of drifted. Mm. But I remember having this idea, um, what happens when you've received everything that you want, but it's not sufficient to bring you joy? Mm. And I just didn't like not being a Christian, a serious Christian. It was I was much more joyous when I was following Jesus. Mm. And so part of what began my, what led to the PhD, right, that I have now was, okay, I know this is faith seeks understanding. I know that in these texts, I find life. But I've heard all of these negative things said about the scriptures and about their coherence. So I need to find out whether or not what my mama and my grandmother and my grandfather told me were true Mm. or if this person at the school is true. So I went on my own intellectual journey to kind of figure this stuff out for myself. Wow. Okay. So that journey gets started while you're in college. Where does it lead you? So um, I started leading a Bible study on Romans where I actually met my wife. Shout out to Romans. (laughs) <laughs> you'll only start a Bible study but as a college don't do that start a Bible study to teach people about Jesus but if you it's a side benefit that you might find something. there it is and it was going well 
But I was like, I could be completely wrong. I don't know. I just tell jokes and people like it and they write stuff down. <laughs> it's like, they sh- I don't know if I'm, I could be completely spitting spit heresy. Mm. So I said, I need to go and learn the original languages so that I at least give myself the best chance to when I teach the Bible, to teach the truth. So I went to Gordon-Conwell and a lot of people were people who had always known they wanted to be Bible people. So now I'm in the midst of kind of like Bible nerd land who know like all of the doctrines of grace and justification and they're using all of this fam- fancy language and like my tradition doesn't use any of that language. Mm-hmm. And we would say like, we're saved by faith. Like we would say that, but we didn't have all of these really- We more likely say we come this far by faith. faith. Like, yeah, like right. we would even, like we, would just, we had <laughs> right. ways of articulating We believe things. those things, but not with the same language. Yeah. Right. And so there is a sense to which they made me feel inferior because my tradition didn't use the nomenclature of their tradition. Right. I came into a game where everybody already knew the rules. I have people who are like, oh, I took Greek in college. I tested out of it. And so I'm already in like Greek 401. I'm talking about the, the present perfect participle and what this means. I'm just like, man, where's the alphabet? And so um, part of seminary for me was kind of feeling like I was catching up to what these people have been doing forever. But I ended up doing really, really well. And I had a professor named Sean McDonough who said, hey, you should think about doing a PhD. Like you got to, listen, he was a white dude from New England. And I only think he, he may or may not even know what he was saying, but he said, you got the juice. Like, from the movie, like you got the juice. Like, what you know about the juice? Okay, so for those that don't know, the statement, you've got the juice, for those of us that were around when uh, Omar Epps yeah. <laughs> had his beef with Tupac yeah. in the movie Juice. In the movie Juice. The statement implied you are now it. it. You yeah. you have the power. Yeah. Juice is power. Yeah. You have the influence. You have what it takes. Yeah, he said, you got the juice. And I was like, wow. He said, well, then if you go anywhere in the, in the world, where would you go? If you could study with anybody, what would you do? Because he's trying to convince me to do it. I said, oh, I would go to, uh, I would study with N.T. Wright, wherever he is. And I applied and got accepted. And that's how I ended up in wow. Scotland. So th- I'm just peeping the contrast here. So you went from a scenario where you, you kind of, your grandma yeah. couldn't, you know, go to an integrated school. No. Your mom integrates the school. Yes. Your sister is the first to graduate from college. You get to college and, in- and initially feel the lowered expectations and struggle in that environment. Yeah. But then because this guy, this white guy from New England, see something in you says you have the juice yeah. it says go pursue your wildest dream yes. which is study under N.T. Wright and the door gets open actually I don't think I appreciated it at the time at the time I was celebrating like N.T. Wright he is now but then he was at the height of his powers right he was the most famous New Testament scholar in the world the person who's on who hosted tonight's show now Stephen Colbert yes there was this thing called the Colbert Report before that right um, where he was on it yep. and that's like Tom Wright a Bible scholar was on the Colbert Report wow like what other Bible scholar in the world would have been like the, the host of the Tonight Show, the current host of the Tonight Show, I want you on my show. Wow. And so like that's how he was everywhere. OK, so you get there and how are you not in Huntsville anymore? What is the experience that you have studying under this person and being in another country across the world? So one of the things that was tricky is that I come out of the church. And in the church, we are all like, even though we compete, but we're in this together. So like in a church, you get an ego if you have a big church, but you don't want anybody's church to close, right? You kind of right. go like, I got 500 members, you don't got but 300, but God bless you, right? This is which, like, you can sh- we can all shine together. Um, the academic world is much more competitive. 
And so there's much more of a like um, dog eat dog like kind of culture. And I was not ready for that. And I was black, right? So like, I'm in this really competitive, not always great communal vibe. And I'm the only African-American in that context. And I'm coming out of a church context, not an academic context. Mm -hmm. And church writing and academic writing are different. And black culture and evangelical culture and white culture are different. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like um, I just didn't fit. I was strange and I had like wider interest. I remember I was some there in 2016, right? When all of this stuff starts happening during the summers. I'm like, look y'all, look what's happening in the church. Like, what are you talking about? You said this stuff started happening. Like all, like the um, Eric Garner, all of the stuff with the- um, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, all of this was was breaking out. That all started when I was abroad. Okay. And so I saw that happening from Scotland and I was trying to talk about it on campus. And I said, I want to speak to the actual experiences of African-American Christians who are trying to be Christian during the present moment. Mm. So the book called Reading While Black was birthed during that period. And what I was seeing was the extreme sense of disillusionment that African-American Christians in particular were feeling were driving them away from the church. And so there's this real sense of like alienation. And so I felt like I wanted to write something that's going to inspire African-American Christians to continue to see in the text of the Old and New Testament hope. Because mm. I think that's what's marked the African-American Christian tradition throughout all of our history, right? Yeah. That we looked in these texts and we saw in them a God who loved us. Mm. So there's a chapter on something like black identity. Right. Can I be black and Christian? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a chapter on policing. Like what does the Bible have to say about the way that states police its citizens? There's one on political witness, right? What is the role of the church in the public square? And so what I wanted to do was model a way of Bible reading that was faithful to the great tradition, but also engaged. Because I feel like historically, these two things have been pulled apart in the academy. When we come back, Dr. Esau McCauley will explain the moment in history when the term social gospel was invented and how that term is still affecting the way we both read the Bible and talk about social issues today. You're listening to Where You're From. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of where you're from. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com.
Hey everyone, my name is Jade Gustafson and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. I wanted to take a quick break from our conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley to share a teaser from our next guest, Scott Welch. This is Where You From. So you think about Revelation 7 and 9, it says every tribe, every nation, and every tongue around the throne of God. And I love that because the throne is where God loves to sit down. So you must be comfortable, right? So every culture, right? Every ethnicity, ethnos, right? And every language. So there we see the heterogeneity that God loves his mosaic. He's not making any one of his kids, the ones that even don't acknowledge him that are still made in his image. He didn't make any of us to be the same. There's seven and a half billion of us and yet not even identical twins are alike. So when you look at all these different places, there's all this diversity throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There's no snowflake that's the same. There's no individual that's the same. The ecology of the world, the terra firma, works based upon bees and bugs and trees and different classifications of the ecology of God. So why when we get to this point where we start talking about human beings, do we get soft and do we run the other way? Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Before we hit play on part two of my conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. There you will find not only the talking points for today's show, but also a link to order Esau's book, Reading While Black, as well as a link to a series of conversations with Dr. McCauley about his book on our other podcast, Discover the Word. This show dives deeply into his book, Reading While Black, and explores some of the ways the African-American church has found life-giving hope in the pages of the Bible. Just copy the link in the podcast description and paste it in your browser or visit our website, whereyourefrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Before the break, Dr. McCauley shared how his experiences have led to his passion to help the black church rediscover the hope that got African-Americans through some of the darkest years in the history of the world. Now we take a slightly different turn as Dr. McCauley guides us through a complicated moment in history when the controversies of the Industrial Revolution created a division between social issues and the biblical text, a split that created a new term called the social gospel, which still affects how many of us read the Bible today. You're listening to Where You're From. Is you have this thing called the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom and, and here in the United States, and you have children working these horrible hours and these horrible conditions in um, factories, and they begin to ask the question, well, what does the gospel have to do with these issues? And some people said, you know what, the gospel speaks directly to these issues. You need to like care about the poor and the needy. And that isn't a new tradition. Christianity had always cared about the poor and the needy, but there was a particular emphasis on it within a certain segment of kind of the white mainline tradition, which becomes known eventually as the social gospel. And one of the things that happened, which isn't necessary, but it just happened nonetheless, is that significant portion of the people who were in favor of the social gospel were also in favor of revisionist the greetings of the scriptures, right? And so the association in mainline Protestantism were the social gospel people were also the Bible deconstruction people. Mm-hmm. So the social gospel people were actually were fighting with the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists, um, in response to both the the social changes and the doctrinal changes, withdraw from culture, 
But some of the things that the like the fundamentals of the faith, like the virgin birth, the inspiration of scripture, these things are things that like black Christians and white Christians would affirm. So like the idea that they're fundamental things, fundamentalist doesn't mean knuckle dragging person who hits you on the head with a club if you don't believe in Jesus. It initially meant these were key ideas. So nonetheless, the fundamentalists withdraw from culture. What becomes evangelicalism is an, is an attempt to re-engage culture. But evangelicalism eventually inherits the same skepticism about social action that comes from the fundamentalism modernism, modernism debate. And so then when you fast forward, you know, a hundred years to oversimplify, not always true, but generally true, that um, what we will call the left of um, evangelicalism heading into the main line tradition tends to be pro-justice, but also revisionistic understandings of scripture. And as you move to the if you, as you move right into evangelicalism um, um, in its most kind of extreme forms on the right, you have an extreme, you know, high doctrines of scripture, emphasis on personal salvation, a denying of institutional sin, and any discussion of institutional sin or systemic sin or racism code you as a liberal. Now, in the middle of all of this is what you would call the great confused people who are believe the Bible is true and they're kind of aware enough in culture to know that something is wrong, but they've heard from their buddies on their right that anyone who talks about justice are to be located on the left. And so they don't actually know what to do because they're kind of saying, well, I want to say these things are true, but I don't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. And so there's a distrust from like of any talk of justice so now that's like one account of this story like if you can keep that in your head yep this is basically the development of the spectrum of debate within kind of a largely white context mm -hmm. if you push pause and like rewind all the way back and then say like change the focus in the movie from like white people to black people okay <laughs> and you say okay how does black christianity start right and, you know, you go back b before the Industrial Revolution to the, you know, 1700s, 1800s, the African-American conversion to Christianity. Mm -hmm. well, what's going on with African-Americans are converted to Christianity? This thing called slavery. Right. And so African-American Christians from the beginning began to protest against an established law. Right. So, like, it's like we need to change the slave laws. Right. And so from the beginning, the African-American church had to be involved in social action in order to actually get free. So there's an habit in the African-American context of, from the beginning, engaging in issues of social concern. Mm. The other thing that you will notice, though, is that the African-American context, when Christianity first starts in the African-American context, is largely theologically orthodox. So you have something like the AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church, is formed out of the Methodist Episcopal Church, right. and they keep the exact same doctrine, mm -hmm. just as social action. Hmm. You have the Black Baptist tradition that comes right out of the out of the Baptist tradition, out of the Great Awakening, mm -hmm. keeps the same doctrine mm -hmm. as social action. So as you move through history, then in the African American context, there's kind of three different responses. One is kind of the Black accommodationist tradition, where they just invibe all the negative things that have been said about them. Anytime someone's been traumatized, kind of you know, there are Black people who go, "Well, we are kind of the worst. Maybe Jesus will save us one day." Mm. And then there's the black revolutionary tradition, which is someone like picked up like Nat Turner, like the three largest slave revolts in American history were led by black pastors who wow. said, God told me to do this. And then you have kind of the black, I would call it revolutionary reformist tradition. 
picked up by people like Frederick Douglass. He writes, what, to the slaves of 4th of July. Yeah. And so yeah, these three strands can form, transform within the still context of a Christian idea and then a by any means necessary kind of tradition. These three traditions actually move through the African-American community, mm-hmm. even up to the Shirais movement. You get Malcolm X, even though he's Nation of Islam, he's picking up on the black revolutionary tradition. Right. I would say, and this is completely made up numbers, I would say about 20% of the African-American tradition is like the revolutionary tradition. Okay. I would guess just from like my experience, especially in the South, is like 60 to 70% would be something along the lines of the revolutionary King Douglas tradition. Right. And about 10% is the conformist accommodationist tradition. Mm. So if you kind of have all that in your head and you move this to you, now you're into the 20th century, the black spectrum moves in a, a, among a much different axis, which is the means by which uh, we acquire freedom. Not if you do it, yes. but how you do how it. How you do it. Got it. And so someone like King is kind of the black, like the, we must create this just society of black and white together. Right. And society has to change. But they're doing this from basically a largely what we would call confessionally orthodox position. Right. And then you have something like the black revolutionary tradition, which is also equally critical of injustice, but they have a different means by which they acquire it. And sometimes they attach to that a revisionistic reading of scripture. Mm. And then you have what I'm calling the continuation of the black accommodationist tradition, where they're just willing to repeat the talking points of the majority culture. Okay. Those are the people who tend to get hired and who tend to get platformed. Gotcha. And evangelicalism in general tends to only see the binary. You're either an accommodationalist or you're a nationalist. Mm. But they remain largely ignorant of what I would call the main highway of the African-American Christian tradition, which is theologically orthodox and emphasis in social action. Got it. So that then when a black person comes into their spaces and starts talking about social action, they only have, as most of their categories, oh, you're a social gospel person like the mainline people in my tradition, or you're a nationalist. Wow. Like, no, but like, this is like Dr. King. Right. This is the AME. This is the Church of God in Christ. This is the Black Baptist. Like, this is normal. Right. And so African-Americans come into evangelicalism and they start to wonder, like, am I a crazy person? Like, mm. what I thought was normal is now this radical idea. Mm. And I think it's because there's the different frames. Got it. And so helping people understand the frames at least help people to understand why we don't hear one another. Okay. How do you respond to, hey, this justice stuff is not, like... It's about helping people come to know Jesus and getting saved, and that's it. So how do you respond to that? Okay. Man, I'm gonna do two things. Okay. First, I'm gonna talk about Isaiah. Isaiah 5, 6. Woe to you who join house to house and have field to field. There's no room left in the land. And then he goes in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. They may run out the strong drink who tear late in the evening as wine inflames them. And then he goes on to talk about um, how they have abandoned the one God of Israel. So there's three things that are going on in Isaiah. A call to the faithfulness of the one God of Israel. A critique of the social practices of Israel, like the actual social injustice and personal morality. Those three things are all like, and if you read Isaiah, these things are often three things that are are together. Then you got to ask the question, then you got to go to all the prophecies against the foreign nations. And why are the foreign nations judged? The foreign nations in Israel are judged for their wickedness. It doesn't simply include personal immorality, but idolatry and the oppression of the poor. Okay. So like the same three things that God is calling Israel to do. He's promising to judge the foreign nations for not doing it. Okay, let me push back. But Paul ain't talking about 
about that. Paul is talking about justification for sin. Right, well, is and, Paul the whole Bible? Hold on, let's go back. So let's let's now we got, now we're gonna go to Jesus. Okay. So Jesus then, and I tell people, when you come to a church, the first sermon that you give is what's gonna set the tone. Mm. Set the tone for the church. Okay. And then Jesus, when he comes in and he says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he is only to preach good news to the poor. What does he do? Who does he turn to is the first question. Who is the sources? He turns to those that same section of Isaiah. Isaiah they can buy, hold on now, 61 and 58 now. Yes. And then 58, the, the question is, why are we fasting and praying and you've not heard it? He says, because the fasting and the praying that you do is not for me, it's for yourselves. This is the kind of fast that I, that I want you to do, to loose the bonds of injustice. So when Jesus is saying, what is my ministry going to be about? Right. My ministry is going to be about the people whose the genuineness of their conversion to God is manifested in, them, in the way that they treat their neighbor. Mm. And so when Jesus is saying, well, what am I about? He's saying, I'm about this. Okay. And when we talk about um, not just there, you go back to like Mary. Mary says, my spirit rejoices in the Lord because he has looked upon the lowliness of his servant. Why? Why is Mary rejoicing in what God is doing to choose her? She's saying that God looked upon her who was lowly. She had no power. And then she says, he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. What is the black actual claim, right? That we have no societal or cultural power. We need a God who cares about the lowly, who will lift us up and cast our oppressors from their thrones. Now, that is not all that Mary rejoices in because she says, my spirit magnifies the Lord. Mary is a worshiper. Mm -hmm. So she's not just worshiping the social liberation. She's worshiping God who brings about social transformation. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's hard for me to ask the question, well, how can you have Mary say what she says? And then it's interesting because you know who Mary's alluding to? Mary's alluding to Isaiah and all of those passages in Luke chapter one. Mm. And what is Isaiah? Isaiah, they call it the fifth gospel. You can't read Isaiah and not see the, the, the Christian call to social transformation. Hold on now. Let's go to the very end of the book, the book of Revelation. What does John call Babylon? He calls Babylon a prostitute. Why? Because she is exploiting the poor and she sells human beings. So this is what, this is what John does. We'll get to Paul in a second. John says modern Rome is like ancient Babylon. Right. So he's now saying uh -huh. in the same way that God judged Babylon, yeah. God's going to judge Rome. Okay. And why does God judge Rome? God judges Rome for her economic policies that exploit the nations. Mm. So... Now imagine this. If I was if I were to stand up today and say, there are certain economic policies exploit the poor all over the world. This makes this place nothing more than a prostitute whom God is going to judge. I would be seen as being political. Mm. But this now I'm not John. So I'm not inspired. So I can't <laughs> automatically articulate these things perfectly. But it is simply dishonest to say the Book of Revelation doesn't contain a critique of social and economic policy. Let's talk about Paul. Can we talk about Paul? First Timothy chapter one, everyone loves first Timothy chapter two, where it says, you know, pray for those who are in authority, which is great. You should do that. First Timothy chapter one, Paul says law is not for the godly, but for the ungodly. And he starts listening to all the ungodly people. Right. And he says, amongst those are slave traders, right. man kidnappers. He's, and he said, that was amongst the things that are contrary to sound doctrine. Now, the last time I checked, 
slavery was legal legal in Rome, right? Right. So it was legal to, slave, to sell slaves, right? Yes. It was illegal to kidnap them and come and get them. But Paul says it is ungodly and contrary to sound Christian doctrine. So it seems to me that Paul's engaging in a public critique of the economic policies in place in the Roman Empire. Mm. So it is, it, is dis, it is simply exegetically dishonest to say that you can get from one end of the Old Testament to the, to the New Testament and, and not see some engagement of, the, of Christians in the public square. Wow. And so we, what I'm saying is we all acknowledge that the Bible speaks to things that are political. The question is, well, which political things does it speak to? You, you know what's the trip? I've been reading Deuteronomy. Yeah. And um, I notice that not only, like after the seven years where if someone was, had put themselves in servitude, it was not only that, but it was also don't send them empty handed. And there was an aspect that says, as you have been blessed. Yes. That seems to suggest a level of proportionality. It's like, so in other words, if they I were- get, I want to get you in trouble on the podcast. Because <laughs> people, people often um, criticize African-American interpretation for emphasizing social location. Okay. And the idea that the experiences that we have influence the kinds of questions that we, that we ask of the Bible. The Bible is still authoritative. The Bible still speaks to us, but we bring our experiences to the text. But here's the thing, and this is all throughout the Old Testament. God says, I want you to treat the people who you own as laid or the foreigner with compassion. Why? Because of your experiences. So their social location as former slaves are are influencing how they treat their neighbor. So it's like God says that your experiences are important forming you into a kind of person. So God is saying that you that you don't just deculturalize yourself, that that, that who you are informs how you Matter of fact, he tells them, remember. Remember. Remember your social location. Remember Remember who you were. Right. You were once slaves in Egypt. This is yes. why I'm telling you to be kind to exactly. the foreigner. And to so it's the, like he encodes social location into the interpretive process. Got it. So I would say that if you want to learn about African-American Christianity, add fontes. Go back to the sources. Go to the first two, three hundred years of African-American conversion, maybe two hundred years of African-American conversion to Christianity. Look at the primary documents. Look at the slave narratives. Look at the sermons. And that's where you find black, what I call ecclesial theology. It's there. It's in the sermons. It's in the, it's in the testimonies. You go there and you will find and be stressed and be challenged. How do I find it? You can find anything you want to find. It's the year of our Lord 2020. Um, so I would start there. Um, the second place I would actually say is that black ecclesial Theology is ecclesial. It's in churches. So if you want to hear about what black Christians say and think and believe, take yourself to a black church. Okay. And sit under their preaching for six months to a year. Okay. I have a lot of evangelicals, friends, or former evangelicals who say, you know what, I stopped going to church because my churches weren't diverse. I said, you stop by a black church on your way out? Mm. <laughs> so you didn't actually want black voices. You just wanted some more like pepper in your salt. Mm. And so like go sit under black church leadership and listen to them. And on the uh, early, uh, those first, you know, those narratives that you mentioned, are yeah. they like a top three list that you have of like, just somebody? No, you gotta dig through them. Okay. You you the I'm not it. gonna give you, I'm not, there's no cheat list. Like, I'm trying to think, if you wanna understand like, you know, anything, you have to waste time. Mm-hmm. Like people say, give me the, no, no, no. If you wanna understand the church okay. fathers, you gotta read through them and get the vibe. All right. Um, so I would say you gotta waste time because you gotta care enough about it. Got it. Because there's nothing worse than someone who's read one book and think they know something.
That was Dr. Esau McCauley, the author of Reading While Black, challenging us to do the hard work of thorough research before we assume we understand the topic fully. You're listening to Where You're From. I'm Ross Sulberry, and if you'd like more information about Dr. McCauley, including a link to his book, Reading While Black, check out the show notes, which are located in the podcast description. The show notes not only contain the talking points for today's show, but also a link to a series of conversations with Dr. McCauley about his book on our other podcast, Discover the Word. Find this link in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. Where You're From is produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, Jade Gustafson, and Ryan Clevenger. I also want to give a quick shout out to Crescentia and Rochelle for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.